questions about the strengths and weaknesses. The creation wasn't that way initially. It seems to be talking about the fall. Paul does not make that clear, but it seems to be talking about the fall. So some things seem to have physically changed. When you get into a progressive view or you get into a theistic evolution view, you're trying, okay, what, what happened to the physical world at the fall? Yeah, what the question is about is, that, you know, in talking about carnivores and everything, when, the, when Isaiah particularly speaks in, in projecting to the millennial kingdom, when the lion will lay down with the lamb and, and there will be no more conflict, in other words, between carnivores and, and herbivores, the plant eaters and the meat eaters, um, that seems to be indicating that they're going back to their original... No, uh, the recent creationists would say that the, the, the dental structure is the same, but they will point. There are a few examples you can find in isolated situations. Uh, there is a lioness. I can't remember what zoo, what con- continent she's on, but she's a complete herbivore. You give her meat, she won't eat it. So it's not like they can't survive on a purely vegetative diet. It's not what they're accustomed to doing. But their teeth appear to be designed... That's what, that's what it appears. Um, and that's, that is a, you know... Well, and, and there would be another instance of animals having been designed anticipating the fall. The fall was not a surprise to God, right? I mean, he knew that was going to happen. He knew what the effects on nature were going to be and I think it makes sense that you could say that God anticipated all that and certain organisms were given the, the equipment to eat meat, but they could survive on a vegetative diet until that time. Yeah, we don't have anything like that. Yeah. Well, that's why for, for the recent creationists, well, all those things are, are coming from the time just before the flood, which is all after the fall. So you wouldn't expect to find real evidence of the pre-fall world in the fossil record. Yeah, the question is about human fossils and if everything that was alive before the flood should have been buried in the fossil record, uh, where are the human fossils? The human fossils are there, but they're all in, in fossil categories that the evolutionists claim are very, very recent. Um, the, now, you still might expect that in some sort of major catastrophic flood that physically you would expect some fossil humans to get thrown into the other layers somehow, some way, right? I mean, it, it's a, statistically, you'd expect to see that. Now, there have been uh, a few claims of fossil, you know, human fossils in places out of order, but they're highly contested, and it's tough to get real data on them, and, you know, they're, they're very rare. But the usual explanation, one explanation I've heard from the young earth view is to say the purpose of the flood was what? Do you remember? To wipe out sin, to wipe out humanity, except for eight people. God's intention then was to wipe them off the face of the earth with no trace. So that why do we not find human fossils? That was God's intention. There's not even been any trace of them, apart from the ones I have chosen to save. They're just... Their physical remains are annihilated. They're just gone. I'll, I'll interject from a plain, straightforward reading of the text. That's not necessarily what I would expect. 
I expect there'd be a jumble of stuff some, some ways throughout the fossil record. Yeah, we, we could have some segmentation, and I accept that, but um, we would only come to that conclusion because there isn't any. There aren't any human fossils in those layers, so we come to a what's called an ad hoc position, which is after the fact. Now that we see this, okay, how can we explain that? It's not a prediction, but it's how we can explain it. Well, let me go on here. Yeah, let me just go on with one, one more question. Okay, one more question. Uh, I had read a book, and I forgot who the author was, but he was miss or... or if it evolved, it evolved by design, by the way. I, you know. Right, right. <laughs> but, but I, I don't know if that's a theory. Yeah, I'm trying to, I'm trying to remember. Uh, I've got a, his, the book was called Genesis Unbound. Yes. Uh, John Salehammer. Um, I even helped some with the promotion of the book. The reason I liked it was not because I saw that it was workable across the board. What he was saying was that um, in Genesis, all of the Pentateuch is about Israel. It's about Palestine. Therefore, we ought to read Genesis 1 through 11 in that context as well. So when the, the word that's used for earth in, bo- in Genesis, both for the creation account and the flood account, is the same word that's used simply to be translated land for a limited geographical area. It's the same word. It's got a wide variety of interpretations that depends on context. His idea, contention, is that the whole context of the Pentateuch is Israel. So when it says land, it's not talking about earth. It's not talking about the whole earth. It's just talking about Palestine. But I remember asking him in a radio interview, I said, yeah, but in, in Palestine area is Mount Hermon, 9,000 feet. So you would say the flood at least had to still cover Mount Hermon. He hesitated for a minute. Uh, well, yeah, yeah, it would, it would have. Okay, you just talked about a universal flood. <laughs> the flood isn't limited anymore uh, to, to Palestine. Well, let's go on and try to finish up and take a break here. Uh, Something I'm going to call all or nothingism. I'm going to give you a quote here from somebody who is now a theistic evolutionist. He was a day age creationist when he wrote this it's from his book, uh, uh, Geology in the Age of the Earth, Davis Young. He said, In the same way, I should be very much surprised if we had a unified knowledge of both the Bible and the world that had no loose ends. Mary, he's saying he'd be surprised if there weren't some loose ends. He defines it here. Why should we expect theology and natural science ever to be expected to agree fully when each by itself has loose ends? Or a better word might be each has their mystery. In the physical realm, when they tell you light is both a wave and a particle at the same time, but you can only measure it as a wave or as a particle. You can't measure it as both, but it exists in both forms. No physicist in the world can explain that to you. It's just a mystery. What's gravity? How does gravity work? We don't have any idea. We can measure it. We can make predictions. We don't have any idea what gravity is. Why is it that two bodies attract each other and it's proportional to their size? We don't know. We don't know what they... It's mysterious. It's a mystery. In theology, do we have our mysteries? Yeah. <laughs> What's the incarnation? Anybody want to explain that to me? How could God be fully man and fully God? How could Jesus, be, how could Jesus do that? What, what, what is that? 
Um, or what about, you know, the whole thing with uh, sovereignty and free will? Anybody want to explain that to me and have it make perfect sense? I, I don't know how to do that. <laughs> Nobody else really does either. There, there are mysteries to our, our theological perspective. So his point here is that why would, if they both have their areas of mysteries, when you bring them together, why in the world do you expect there to be a complete, perfect lining of things up? It, it's it's going to have some stuff it can't explain. He said we should not fall into the trap of thinking that somehow Scripture is more reliable or trustworthy if it's at every point backed up by scientific evidence. That's just not going to happen. It's like expecting all of the uh, historical accounts in the Old Testament that we're going to find archaeological evidence for all those things. No, we're not. Archaeology is a very fragmentary science, and you get pieces here and there. And we're going to find, we find support, but you don't find support for everything that happened there. Said, so, nor should we somehow suspect that Scripture may be untrustworthy if science doesn't back it up at every point. You shouldn't expect that. It's not realistic, just because of the nature of what science is. It's not going to explain everything that we know. That's what they try to do, but it's never going to do that. It's a human activity. I like the way Francis Schaeffer put it. We must take ample time, and sometimes this will mean a long time, to consider whether the apparent clash between science and revelation means that the theory set forth by science is wrong or whether we must reconsider what we thought the Bible says. Oh, wait a minute. Reconsider what we thought the Bible says? What he's saying is it's going to take us some time on occasion to figure out whether science is wrong or whether what we thought the Bible was saying is wrong. Let me give you an example of what he talks about. He uses this example himself. This is uh, Michelangelo's sculpture of Moses. It's Moses after he's come down from um, the mount with God. He's got the Ten Commandments there under the crook of his arm, off to the under his right arm. You can't see it too well here, but... Um, can you look at the top of his head? Is that, you see, it looks a little weird. There is something a little weird up there. We'll focus in on it a little bit. There is something unusual. The Hebrew word for Shekinah glory that we understand today is God's radiant light because of his presence. We understand today that Moses came down from the mountain, he had to wear a veil over his head because the light was so bright people couldn't look at him. He had to shield his face. That's what we understand it today. In Michelangelo's time, that word, that Hebrew word, was not so clearly understood. Close up. What do you see on the top of his head? There are horns on his head. Why? Because that Hebrew word was, a similar, was similar to the root word for goat horns. In that time, in the 16th century, biblical scholars didn't have another good example for this word, and the only thing else in Scripture itself that was close was the root word for horns, animal horns. So what did Michelangelo do? If he's going to be consistent with Scripture... He sculpted Moses with horns on his head. Is that what the Bible really said? That's what we thought it said. But then we found extra-biblical texts. What that means is, is texts of Hebrew, the Hebrew language that were not Scripture. 
they used the same word in a context that clearly indicated the word meant God's radiant glory. And all of a sudden, a lot of people breathed a huge sigh of relief. That makes a whole lot more sense. Oh, good. Moses didn't have horns on his head, man, when he came down from the mountain after meeting God. That was just really weird. But at the time, that's what we thought the Bible said. You've got a sculpture here that clearly linked it. That's what Michelangelo was trying. He was trying to be consistent with Scripture. And there may still be issues of how we understand the Hebrew particularly, where maybe there are some things that aren't really clarified yet. Maybe there are some surprises down the road. Genesis is the oldest written document of Scripture. It's the oldest. There are bound to be some things in there that we might not fully comprehend just yet. And then lastly, there's that issue of apparent age. If creation is out of nothing, ex nihilo, then there must be some kind of apparent age. Adam was created as what? An embryo? No, he was created as an adult. Adam looked like he had some history, didn't he? <laughs> uh, how many years of history depends usually about how old you are currently. I kind of think he looked like he's in his mid-50s, but uh, some of you might think differently. Uh, but for all that, how old was he? Well, we don't know. He was five minutes old, but he looked like an adult. He was an adult. Okay? That's what we explain. Adam was created as an adult, even though he was only a few seconds old. And so we look at the rest of creation, and there has to be an appearance of age. Things have to look like there's a history if you're creating things out of nothing. But then the question comes up, is there a point where apparent age goes too far? Could it become... If you, if you extend it too far, could it become deception? Let's just look at one possibility here. Starlight and time. Galaxies must be millions of light years away. Otherwise, the night sky would not be dark. If all of those galaxies were close enough for the light to reach us in just 6,000 years. Now, a light year is the distance light travels in one year. Okay. So if everything was within 6,000 light years so that we could see all these galaxies that we see today, they'd have to be just 6,000 light years away. If that were the case, these galaxies would be so close, we'd be dead from the radiation. There would be no nighttime sky. Everything was so close, everything would be brilliantly white all the time. You wouldn't even see the sun. <laughs> the galaxies are so so many suns, uh, it would just be impossible. Our own galaxy is said to be 100,000 light years across. We see the Milky Way. Light, so the answer, how could these things be that far away if we can see them? The usual answer has been light from these distant objects was created in transit. So God not only created all these galaxies and stars, even our own galaxy, but he created the light already in process so that right from the start, on day four, when the sun, moon, and stars are created, the light was already put in place, so even though it's tens of thousands of light years away, we see it on that day. It didn't take tens of thousands of years for the light to get here. God just created the light itself along with the objects. You understand that? All right. But we have observed, not just the stars themselves, we've observed dynamic events, 
such as supernova or exploding stars from these distant galaxies. Now think about that for a minute. Even if the galaxy is just 100,000 light years away and we've seen a supernova explosion in that galaxy, we must conclude this event never happened. Because it's too far away. The light has not had enough time from that explosion to get to the Earth in a 6,000-year-old universe. Therefore, God had to create not just the light in transit, but the effect of an exploding star was created in transit as well. With all the accompanying radiation that explains this was an exploding star, but the star never exploded. Do you understand? The time frames just don't work. The distance and the time, there, there's something, something's not working right. Okay? But we've observed the event with all the accompanying radiation, the spectrum of all different kinds of stuff, everything you'd expect from an exploding star. It looks like it was a real exploding star. It's kind of like seeing Adam's birth on video. And we know Adam wasn't born, but yet we have a video showing his birth. That never happened. You know, that, that's, that's just weird. Why, why would we see that? Now, we could say that with the supernova, there are things we've learned about the universe, about the structure of stars, and all sorts, by observing supernova explosions. So God has provided that for us so that you know, we can learn some things about his, his creation. But at the same time, I, I struggle, at least personally, with, with this idea. Um, is God deceiving us? Okay, I, I can see a value, I can see a point, but this isn't just like looking at a tree and finding tree rings from something that was created yesterday. I'm seeing effects of age. I'm not seeing the process of the tree growing itself, even though it never grew. To me, there's, there's a distinction to be made there. I think there's mystery in this question. We need to respect creation's mystery and those who hold different views. There are conservative evangelical scholars, Old Testament scholars, physical scientists who disagree strongly about how Genesis is to be understood and how the scientific evidence is to be understood. How in the world do we expect a 10-year-old to figure it out? What's my position? I'm a confirmed fence-sitter. I'm not a theistic evolutionist. I find no value whatsoever in that position. But when it comes to the age issue, um, part, of, part of my reasoning, as you're seeing on, on this slide, is that I know evangelical Old Testament scholars who I understand something about their life, something about their testimony, something of the power of God in their lives, and they strongly disagree of how to interpret Genesis 1. And I know scientists that I've had conversations with and I'm friends with who are on both sides of the fence, they disagree strongly about how the scientific data is to be understood. Um, I'm a biologist. I don't have any Old Testament credentials. I have zero Hebrew credentials. If the experts that I know well and trust can't figure it out, how in the world can I figure it out? <laughs> um, that might be a cop-out, but... I really am not sure. This is not a position of convenience, because trust me, I get shot at from both sides. Um, and I get invited from both sides. For instance, uh, in July next month, uh, July 10th through 18th, I'm accompanying uh, 
answers in Genesis on a raft trip down to Grand Canyon. That's only, it's an invitation only for Christian leaders. Why do they want to do this? I only had to pay $300, by the way. Get myself there. A raft trip is about $2,500. So this is scholarship. They're trying to, to bring Christian leaders along. They'll have uh, a biblical scholar, a uh, hist- uh, historical science scholar, and a geologist, a Ph.D. geologist. And they're going to be giving us the recent creation story. Uh, they want to convince you. They want to show you the evidence, upfront and personal. And uh, I'm, I'm open. I'm I'm, I've been down the Grand Canyon before with the Institute of Creation Research, so I've, I've seen the perspective of the scientists they're bringing. is the same one who led my two backpacking trips down in the canyon with ICR. Uh, so we're good friends. Um, I, I'm, I'm really just not sure. Uh, like I said, there, it's not a position of convenience for Probe. Probe Ministry's official position is that we don't take a position on the age question. Um, Hopefully what I've done for you is help explain the different views, maybe giving you a better understanding of how they arrive at their particular positions. I don't expect you to respect them more than you might have. And maybe with your own position you've been able to see, well, there's a few more holes in it than I might have thought. Um, All that to simply try to um, encourage the search for truth. I'd really love to know. I really would. Um... Honestly, biblically, I find the young earth position to probably be more, more accurate. Not that it's completely accurate, not that it doesn't have its own questions and mysteries. And I find the older few a bit more reasonable and uh, consistent scientifically. Um, but I think it has its own scientific problems and theological problems. But that's where I stand. I've met him, I've talked with him. Uh, He's very open uh, about allowing people to come. He, he's dug up dinosaur prints, and, and uh, Paluxy River there near Glen Rose was a site back in the 60s where uh, Films for Christ made a film called Footprints in Stone, where they found what looked like human footprints in the same layer as dinosaur footprints. That would be a very, very strong evidence in favor of the flood model, and clearly... Uh, a definite refutation of evolutionary theory. Um, humans and dinosaurs could not have coexisted in the evolutionary model. Um, the film received some, some wide uh, distribution and uh, was a major evidence. A lot of people started using against evolution, these footprints down there. And you just couldn't get an evolutionist to go down there and look at it. Uh, they basically refused. They thought it was a bunch of malarkey. Uh, there, there were already evidences of once those got known in the 30s and the 40s. It's been a, it's been around for a while. Um, certain people's land that the Plux River ran through was on their property, where some of these footprints were, and there were already clearly carved human footprints that were being sold, the roadside stands and stuff. So that, the evolutionists just jumped on that. <laughs> this is all a fraud. This is ridiculous, you know. Um, but then some evolutionists began to take it seriously. And there were from, from a couple of Texas universities in this area. They, they organized a group that was just going down there and study this stuff. Well, what in the world is going on? This isn't going away. Let's try to figure this out. 
Um, and there were a creationist or two, or at least a Christian or two, that was involved with this group, uh, was curious themselves. Um, long and short of it is, that it's a long story, but what they finally came down to, and almost every other creationist organization accepts this interpretation today, that what looked like dinosaur fo- human footprints, because there seemed to be uh, a little structure that was like a, an arch and a heel and, and a faint impression of maybe toes or something. What began to happen is that it was kind of shaped like this. What began to happen is, because you, you had, in order to see these, you had to dam up the river a little bit and pump the water out because it was ordinarily underwater. And, and then you'd have to you know, take the sandbags away, let the river run normally. What happened is that shortly... Three points began to appear above these human footprints that matched them exactly. Every single time there was what looked like the possible human footprint, these three what looked like claw marks began to appear. What what they ended up concluding, and most, as I said, most young age creationists accepted this interpretation. They looked at the evidence. They looked at how they investigated. You know, these guys are right. But what that was, it was was a dinosaur, a three-toed, meat-eating dinosaur that was actually kind of walking on its toes and they've on on its on its heel. And there's a there's a back claw on all of those kinds of dinosaurs, and that's what was making the imprint that looked like a human footprint. But that the front three toes were still coming down hard enough to make an a a three-clawed imprint that showed you that it was a dinosaur. Carl Baugh continues to maintain that those back claw look like human footprints are still human footprints. And what happened was, yes, a dinosaur made those initial prints, but a human came and walked right on top of them after, after the dinosaur death. Um, I'll be honest with you. Uh, Carl Baugh and uh, Don Patton, who's another area uh, creationist, they're the only two in the creationist group that accept that explanation. Uh, I'm not qualified to say one way or the other, but I know ICR has repudiated the human footprints. AIG doesn't talk about the human footprints anymore. Um, the uh, Creation uh, Foundation group uh, out of Australia, they don't accept that evidence anymore. Carball really is the only one. He's kind of a lone ranger with it. Um, I went to the museum once. It's been many, many years ago, but I'm sure there's different things available. He's looked upon as kind of a maverick, and most of the creationists um, that I've talked to, the scientists and others, just they want to be kind. Nobody wants to talk down about him or bad about him, but you know they they really think he's making a mistake. Uh, the yeah the hyperbaric uh, yeah um, and that there's a, a canopy of I think he called it's helium that he talks about. Bigger animals, uh, faster healing rates. Um, the canopy idea, and I'm just going to cover this quickly because I, I really want to talk about some of this stuff here. We'll get as far as we can. I've only got to 11:45. I got less than an hour. Um, canopy has fallen into disrepute uh, in many different ways. Uh, for some, it's that the the biblical evidence isn't as strong as they thought it was. Um, it used to be looking at day two where the waters are separated from the waters and there's an expanse in the midst of the waters. The expanse was thought to be the atmosphere. 
uh, and that there's a water canopy above the earth that would have done all those same things. Uh, longer lifespans, vegetative diet would have been just fine. Um, larger size could have been possible because of the increased air pressure, faster healing rates, uh, fewer mutations, uh, blocking out more harmful sun rays from the sun. Uh, an idyllic situation. It was, it was really attractive. Uh, but they ran into two problems. First of all, it was a biblical problem. In other places, go down to, to day four, and it says God placed the sun, moon, and the stars where? In the expanse. If the expanse is the atmosphere, then if I straightforwardly read this, I've got a problem. Um, so what, what Hugh Ross Humphreys, his, his model is that the expanse is the universe, that there is a watery layer around the edge of the universe. Um, and then the other physical problem was a, a water vapor canopy. Uh, Carball uses a helium one. Again, he's the only one that uses a helium uh, canopy. Um, the water canopy would, would have been, God would have had to have intervened and to maintain it, to keep it there for 1,500 years before the flood. Um, that's their source of rain for 40 days and 40 nights. But you just can't do it. Um, without God's intervention. Physically, it couldn't last. It would have, it would have just fallen apart. It, it couldn't sustain itself. So it's, it's run into several different problems. Um, well, I've got you all thinking all kinds of things here. So we're going to refocus back on, on evolution and Darwin. Um, this is the year of Darwin, if you're not fully aware yet, if the propaganda hasn't hit you. Uh, it's the 200th anniversary of his birth and the 150th anniversary of the publication of Origin Species. So he was born in 1809, Origin Species published in 1859. There are 300 birthday celebrations in Britain alone. I don't have an outline for this, by the way, so uh, you can take notes however you would like choose to. Um, <laughs> yeah, they even got Darwin's picture on the 10-pound bill with Queen Elizabeth. Uh, I just That one really astounds me. Um, Shrewsbury, the central England town where Darwin was born and raised, is holding a month-long festival for its most famous son. I think that's already passed. There are permanent exhibitions recreating some of his most famous experiments. The uh, Down House, where he lived, his former home near London. So all kinds of Darwin stuff going on. Born in 1809, graduated from Cambridge with a theology degree in 1831. Sailed on the Beagle from 31 to 36, a five-year around-the-world voyage. His uh, notes from that were published in 1845, variously known as Voyage of the Beagle. Some call it the best natural history record of such a voyage ever. <laughs> okay. Voyage of the Beagle is uh, almost like the Old Testament and the origin of species is the New Testament. Uh, and Descent of Man is Revelation, I think is the way you could look at that. So he, was, he published extensively, uh, died in 1882, was buried next to Isaac Newton in West, Westminster Abbey. Did you know that? Next to Newton. Uh, he was highly thought of when he, when he passed away, even among the Christian community. To be buried in Westminster Abbey, you, the, the Church of England had to approve that. I've been to Galapagos Islands. They're a fascinating place. Um, Darwin's uh, finches uh, are really tough to distinguish. One uh, commentator actually said that only God and, and Peter Grant can identify Darwin's finches. And, and Peter Grant has spent 30 years 
identifying the fences. Uh, the giant tortoises, which uh, were instrumental in, in Darwin uh, coming to some of his ideas about variation, are there. Uh, the mockingbirds, he noticed there were three different mockingbirds on three different islands, and why would God create three different mockingbirds on three different islands? Uh, the marine iguanas are the only lizard in the world that eat algae from the sea. And uh, most of them just stay on the land, but this is the only one that goes in the water. Uh, Darwin referred to them as uh, ugly brutes. He wasn't too impressed with them. Um, flightless cormorant, uh, cormorants that feed in the sea but can't fly. They still flap their wings to dry them out, though. Uh, it's weird. Galapagos is a great place. You ought to go sometime. Expensive, but... And then, of course, the blue-footed boobies. Um, most people's favorites. Uh, they, they're, they're just very clownish looking. And uh, as you can see, the feet really are that blue. And penguins. You know, there's penguins in the Galapagos. They're on the, they're on the equator. There's penguins. The only tropical penguin in the world. In the Descent of Man, Darwin made some interesting comments. And this is why we're going to say why evolution, why discussion about origins is so critical. This is one of the first issues, racism. Darwin was a strong abolitionist. In other words, he didn't believe in slavery. He thought it was awful and, and was part of the movement to get it stopped. And he felt that uh, he helped to establish that all races of man were from a common ancestor. And he felt that that helped to get rid of this issue of slavery. We are all interrelated. There are not Some of the slave traders and so forth were trying to maintain that the African blacks and the Caucasian, European Caucasians were different creations of God and that legitimized enslaving one by the other. Darwin did away with that, they said. Good thing. So he's definitely an, an abolitionist. But that doesn't mean he believed all races to be the same. Now this next quote, I've got to uh, kind of give you an intro to it to help you understand it. What he's responding to in this next quote, this is in The Descent of Man, is the claim by some that he'd heard, if humans are descended and, and apes are all, you know, they're, they're common, they've got a common ancestor, why is there such a wide degree of divergence of their appearance? Why do humans look so different from apes? And what he wanted to explain is that some of those intermediate forms have gone extinct. And so, yeah, they do have a common ancestor, but the ancestor is extinct. And they've just gone their different ways, and those things behind them are extinct. Well, we've got this one and this one, but there is a trail that leads back to a common ancestor. But the other stuff that would be intermediate are all extinct. <clears throat> so there appears to be a divergence. But that he expects in the future for the divergence to look larger. Because he already expected that because of human intervention that the great apes, the chimpanzees, the gorillas, the orangutans would probably go extinct, he said, within the next few centuries. And he also expected some of the more lesser evolved human races to also be outcompeted and to go extinct. So that the divergence between humans and their apes Ape cousins would be even larger. Here's what he says. The break will then be rendered wider 
For it will intervene between man in a more civilized state, as we may hope, than the Caucasian. So he uplifts the Caucasian as the currently more civilized state, and he's hoping they'll become even more civilized. So it'll be between the Caucasian and some ape as low as a baboon. That will be the ape-human difference, Caucasian-baboon. Instead of, as present, the gap is between the Negro or the Australian and the gorilla. Not the Caucasian. The closest humans to the apes are the Negroes and the Australians, Aborigines. Now, he may have been an abolitionist, but he was a racist. He clearly says here, if you understand the context of all of what he said before, which I tried to give to you, he is saying that certain humans are more closer to the apes than we Caucasians are. You can develop a racist ideology from Darwin very easily. I've got a book I'll just give away here called Darwin's Racist that I'm a um, limited co-author on, but if you want a copy, you can come get one afterwards. Ernst Haeckel was a supporter of Darwin in Germany. He talked about hundreds and thousands of incurables, lunatics, lepers, people with cancer, <clears throat> are artificially kept alive. He was livid about this. Without the slightest profit to themselves and the general body. How awful that we are keeping these inefficient, useless humans alive. When we should be promoting the survival of the species. Now we're just going to skip that. An organism survives, strives to survive and reproduce. That's the basic evolutionary principle. And it's the species that persists through time, not individuals. Individuals are, are temporary members of the species. Nature selects from the variations. So that's where mutation, natural selection comes in. Everything is a natural process. What they say is that evolution is the biological basis of all social behavior. It's not just about how you physically appear. It's about your social behavior. It's about how you think, how you talk, how you act. Evolution has brought about all these things. You used to say that the chicken is simply an egg's way of making another egg. Now think about that for a minute. Chicken is simply an egg's way of making another egg. Well, that's been modernized. The organism, your body, my body, is simply DNA's way of making more DNA. How important do you feel now? You're manipulated by a molecule. And that's what's really important. If you're getting the idea that life is being devalued, that's correct. That's what evolution, Darwin's evolution, will do something they call the reproductive imperative. <clears throat> it's survival and reproduction. That's what all organisms are being guided by. That's what constrains them all. Okay? And we're just another organism, so we will strive the same way, simply to survive and reproduce. Question. Why do we love our children? Why do you love your kids? Those of you who have kids, why do you love them? Why? Any answers? I mean, you have to. The Bible says so. So, <laughs> Yeah. Loving our children is an effective means of producing effective reproducers. 
It works. Those who have loved their children or acted in a way that was perceived and named love, their children survived better and became better reproducers than those who weren't acting that way towards their kids. It's just, it's a strategy that works to survive and to reproduce. That's all it is. Feeling less significant? Let's go a little further. Over evolutionary time, it's the species survival that matters, not the individual. Besides, you're just a, a housing for reproducing DNA. And the organism is just DNA's way of making more DNA. Evolution ultimately will devalue any life, including human life. That's where it ultimately will go. The individual lives are not significant unless you are a contributor to the survival of the species. You have no value. You have no significance within society as a whole. All behavior becomes selfish. No species, ours included, possesses a purpose beyond the imperatives created by its own genetic history. That's the, that's the survival reproduction stuff. We have no particular place to go. The species doesn't have a purpose. There's no purpose to anything. We're just here. And we survive and reproduce as best we can because that's what our DNA prompts us to do. And if you don't survive and reproduce, well, then you go extinct. That's the way it is. Okay? Now, as I said, all behavior comes up, becomes ultimately selfish. Why? Because everything is to promote your survival, your reproduction. So everything really becomes focused on what's good for you. Sound familiar in our society today? <laughs> A little selfish, are we? Personal survival and reproduction is all that ultimately matters. The individual truly is meaningless. Do you see the logic of how that follows within the evolutionary context? Species survival is the ultimate goal. Now, there is a search for significance in all this, hope and meaning. Humans seem to need some kind of hope, some kind of significance to their life, but evolutionary context is saying the exact opposite. There is no real significance or meaning to your individual life. But we all look for that. We all strive for that. We all, we all hunger for that. And I gave a presentation many years ago. Uh, probably would have been, uh, let's see, back in the early 80s. Um, <laughs> almost 30 years ago. Um, at a college, a Christian college in Minnesota, Bethel College, they had a conference there about this sociobiology stuff. And they invited Christians and non-Christians to come. And I gave a presentation based, based on what I've just kind of run through with you here about where it ends up leading. No significance, no meaning, no purpose. And, you know, why, why carry on with life in that context? And one of the major presenters actually showed up in my small uh, session. He was a, an atheist from University of Minnesota. And uh, I talked about this lack of hope and meaning. So, well, wait a minute. He interrupted me. So, you know, you're talking about hope and meaning, you know, in, in capital letters. And it might just be that there is no hope and meaning in capital letters, but there is hope and meaning in lowercase letters, and there's still hope and meaning. And I said, no, you don't get it. 
If all there is is hope and meaning, as you described, survival and reproduction, without the hope and meaning in the capital letters, it's an illusion. It's not really there. You can invent some kind of hope and meaning for your life. You can invent some kind of significance to your life, but that's understanding that it's not real. I uh, was once in a class at UNT. It was a class on this topic. We read the books, some of the books I've just uh, quoted to you from. Um, And we were talking about this whole idea of meaning and significance for human beings. Now, these were five uh, professors from ecology and evolution and about 10, 15 graduate students in that same department. We all read the same stuff. They're talking about meaning and significance and hope. And I said, now, wait a minute. What I hear you saying is that the only purpose in life is to survive and reproduce, the small letter. And I looked at him and said, well, yeah, that's, that's what evolution tells you. It's okay. Well, let me offer you a hypothetical. Let's say I'm dead. I'm in the ground. Decomposers are doing their thing. It's a biology audience here, so you got to... Um, what difference does it make to me now whether I've reproduced or not? Because it's over, right? I mean, there is no afterlife. There is nothing else beyond this. My life is over. Um, let's say I didn't reproduce. So what? I'm dead. I'm extinct. A few minutes, a minute or two goes by, and finally one of the professors speaks up. He says, well, ultimately, I guess it doesn't really matter. <laughs> that's exactly what I was hoping somebody would say. So, well, well if that's the case, if, well, first you tell me that survival and reproduction is the only purpose in life, and now you're telling me ultimately that doesn't matter either. So what's the point? Why go on living? Why stop at red lights? Who cares? Another silence. Same professor finally speaks up. <laughs> he says, well... Listen carefully now. He said, well, I guess then that in the future, those that will be selected for, in other words, those that will continue successfully to survive and reproduce, those that will be selected for will be those who know there is no purpose in life, but they will live as if there is. And you know what frightened me the most? It's not that he said that, but everybody else in the room just sat there and shook their heads. And I talked to some of them afterwards. They didn't like where he ended up. They thought something was wrong with that. But I said, well, you saw his logic, didn't you? Don't you say that follows logically from an evolutionary world? Well, well, yeah, 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 but there's got to be something wrong with that. Not if you stay within the logic of the evolutionary view. I saw Total Truth out there on uh, the book table. I highly recommend this book. It's got a chapter in there called Darwin's of the Mind. I just want to highlight a couple of things out of that. She relates a story about Joseph Stalin. He actually studied to be a Russian Orthodox priest. While he was still in seminary, he had this conversation. Joseph heard me out, meaning Joseph Stalin, and after a moment's silence said, you know, they're fooling us. There is no God. I was astonished. I'd never heard anything like it before. How can you say such things, so-so, which was Stalin's nickname? 
Stalin says, I'll lend you a book to read. It will show you that the world and all living things are quite different from what you imagine. And all this talk about God is sheer nonsense. What book is that, Darwin? You must read it. What formed the initial worldview of Joseph Stalin? It's Darwin. Origin of species. No God. If there is no God, I can do what I please. It's just a power game after that. And he played it to the full. You know, when you look at, in the Second World War, Hitler, Stalin, Eastern Front, that was about as stereotypical an evolutionary war as you could find. Because each side, what they would do, what did they do when they gained ground? Anybody who sympathized with the other side, slaughter them all. It was a power game, plain and simple. I will conquer you because you are a threat to me. It was, it was two Darwinian worldviews competing against each other, just looking for power. And when you get a Darwinian worldview in the, in the context of government, that's all that matters anymore. Power and control, pure and simple. Darwinism has, pure, has impacted a number of areas. We're just going to focus on a few, but sociology, psychology, even economics, political thought, morality, theology, law, literature, philosophy, Darwinistic thinking has penetrated all these areas. So when we talk about evolution, creation, this is not just an issue about a scientific theory. Darwinism has influenced every aspect of life today. And I'm, I'm, I'm not exaggerating. Some turning points. Another name, Oliver Wendell Holmes, one of the great uh, Supreme Court justices, uh, was convinced, became a convinced Darwinist after his Civil War experiences. He concluded that evolution applies not only to physical organisms, but also to beliefs and convictions. That our beliefs and convictions, they also evolve over time. Pragmatism. American philosophy, that's the one thing we, we can take credit for. <laughs> Didn't come from Europe, came from America, pragmatism. It's adopted the Darwinian conclusion that matter preceded mind and therefore ideas, concepts, convictions develop as tools for survival. Pragmatism is about survival. Doing what's best for right now, getting along, getting by, surviving for today, and making it to tomorrow. That's pragmatism. You don't worry so much about whether things are truly right or wrong. It's about what works and what works for today. And that is a purely Darwinian perspective. A few other things. Psychologist William James decided that ideas are imprinted like rewarding behaviors. If an idea pays off, we call it true. Sound familiar? In our culture today, if it works, that's good enough. That becomes what's true. John Dewey, author of much of American education today, wrote that Darwin gives us a new logic to apply to mind, morals, and life. Similar to James, if an idea, an idea is good if it does the job. We're not just talking about what's true, we're talking about what's good or evil. And again, it's simply by what works, and this is Darwinian thinking. 
Dawkins, who I've got one of his books here, uh, Blind Watchmaker, is another book he wrote. Darwin made it possible to be an intellectually fulfilled atheist. Mid-19th century, the only thing the atheist could not explain was the complexity of living things. Darwin finally provided a natural process that hopefully could do that. So you could now be a full atheist as long as Darwin was right. How did he transform America? A couple of things here we'll look at just briefly. Theology, law, education, and philosophy. How many have heard the term process theology? A couple of you heard the term. Process theology teaches that God and the world are both in a process of constant change and evolution. God evolves. That's the basic idea. God evolves over the course of history and is God is changed by our choices and decisions. He's not omniscient. He's not omnipotent. Powerful, but not all-powerful. Smart, but not all-knowing. And some evangelicals borrow some of these same ideas in a concept that's now called open theism. Hear the phrase open theism? Red flags ought to go up in your head. Hey, what, what do you mean by that? What are, you, what are we talking about now? <laughs> Where does this come from? Yeah, we're just trying to hit the surface of things. All these ideas spring from a Darwinian worldview. Darwinism has impacted theology in America and Europe and around the world. No question about it. Judges. Oliver Wendell Holmes again. He treated law as a product of evolving cultures and traditions. Things don't stay the same. Things are always evolving. Therefore, law should evolve as well. <clears throat> He said, the man of the future is the man of statistics and the master of economics. Why the master of statistics, do you think, before an evolving world? What does this statistics tell you? Opinion polls. Let me throw that one out there. How many political campaigns decide what approach they're going to take in their election campaign based upon what the polls say people want to know about. Many people form their opinions, politicians, based upon what the opinion polls say. That was one of the things that Bill Clinton was most criticized for, even among his Democratic colleagues, is that he far too often just looked at what the polls say, what's important to people, and that's the side, that's the direction I'm going to take it. Why? Because he gets the most approval that way. It's not whether things are right or wrong, but what do the statistics say people are interested in? Holmes very clearly agreed that judges do not interpret the law, but they make law. You heard that phrase? Conservatives uh, in this country are opposed to, cons- to, uh, in- to making law from the bench. It's a Darwinian idea. Because cultures evolve. People evolve. Things change. The Constitution... It, it, We've got to change that over time. If the only way to do it is through the courts, that's how we do it. The Constitution was written for late 18th century America. This is now 21st century. It's probably not going to apply as easily as it used to. So we've got to make law from the bench. They don't say it that clearly. <laughs> that's political suicide still today. But that's the thinking. Roe versus Wade, the abortion decision, is universally understood, not just by pro-life people, but as it's recognized as being legislation from the bench. And most of the liberal law activists 
see that as a good thing. They're not embarrassed by that at all. This is the way law ought to be. Education, John Dewey saw intellectual inquiry as a form of mental evolution. Therefore, this idea values clarification. It says, none of us can be certain our values are right for other people. Your values are a product of your upbringing, your culture, and they probably don't apply to Samoa. They just don't. <clears throat> Total truth, she's got some great examples there of teachers who've gotten themselves into, into trouble. One teacher, she had a group of uh, teaching in a, high, in a middle school, I think, that was uh, <clears throat> for disadvantaged kids and for those who had, had trouble with the law and you know they've been in jail. And so it's, it's a separate school trying to get them caught up on things. And uh, <clears throat> she taught values clarification to try to get them to clarify what their real values were you know, from inside themselves. And as it turned out, their values were skipping school, using drugs, and she gave away her authority to keep those kids in school. She clarified their values for them. <laughs> uh, she was stuck with it. Dewey said the goal of education should be to teach students how to construct their own knowledge. How to construct their own knowledge. Not know what's true. Construct your own knowledge. This idea of constructivism does not assume the presence of any kind of objective reality. You re it's revealed to you. And it's, not, it's, not re it's not revealed to you, but rather the learners actively construct their own reality. Get this, in one state, this is the United States today, she didn't identify which state, the history standards say that by high school, students should have a strong sense of how to reconstruct history. That's an evolutionary idea. That's Darwinian thinking in education. On 242 of Total Truth, she gives an example of a Christian school administrator. She'd given a talk at a, at a Christian education uh, conference. And this uh, administrator comes up to her and says, all of my new teachers are coming with this constructivist attitude of education, that, they have, that the students themselves construct their own reality. And this guy is in a Christian school. That's what his Christian teachers were coming with, because that's what they learned at the university. That's the current thing. That's... That, that's how education is done today. I tell you, it's, it's, it's there, it's everywhere. Just don't think that because your kids are in a Christian school that they're safe from this kind of thinking. Philosophy. Richard Rorty, truth is made, not found. That says a lot. He wrote, keeping faith with Darwin means that all our beliefs and convictions are products of chance. Our beliefs and convictions are just the products of chance. So yours can't be any better than mine. Truth is simply what helps you get ahead in the struggle for existence. Again, Darwinian thinking in philosophy. <clears throat> but Darwinism is a fact. You see, the, you see the contradiction here? If truth is just what helps you get ahead, then isn't Evolution, just a truth that helps us get ahead? Why would we call it a fact? It can't be a fact. There's no such thing as facts. You, get, you see the contradiction in that? Even our fundraising. 
I'm going to step on some toes. Early 1900s, social Darwinism slowly choked out the biblical vision for moral community. Andrew Carnegie, who was a social Darwinist, drew a line of distinction between those who were worthy of charity and those who were not. Some are worthy of charity and some are not. There's a cost-benefit ratio. If I infuse money into this group of people, they probably won't give the better result if I infuse my money over here. So I have to go through a lot of research to determine when I donate my money, what's going to have the most positive benefit for society? Right? That's Darwinian thinking. Jesus never dispersed charity or his love or his attention to people who he thought would best change the world. The people he chose for his disciples were a bunch of fishermen and, and lowlifes. <laughs> there wasn't anything significant about any one of them. It's a very different thought. Fundraisers encourage today, even in the church, methods that simply work. Uh, pastors I was a part of, we had a fundraising campaign for a building, and we hired an outside company to do it for us. And basically what they come in and they tell you is that, Let's, let's look at your, your giving totals, your, your, your attendance. Uh, all, give us the facts and figures of how your church works and how, how much money comes in. <clears throat> and then based on the methods we use, and if you do things the way we tell you to do them, this is how much money you will raise. But what if I feel God is telling me we, we, we can raise twice that much? Oh, no, 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 no. The studies show this is how much you will raise. That's what works. That's Darwinian thinking in the church. Uh, why bother praying through a process like that? If, you just get, if I just do things the way you tell me to do them, and I use this, the, the publicity, I use the meetings, I use the small group stuff, and we use these videos, and we do this, we do that, and then we'll have this much money at the end of it. Why should I bother praying? Right? What is theistic about that? <laughs> it's very naturalistic. Um, great quote here from uh, Daniel Dennett, his book, Darwin's Dangerous Idea. If you insist on teaching your children falsehoods, those he combines, the earth is flat with man being a product of evolution. <laughs> okay? If you teach your kids those two falsehoods, then you must expect at the very least that those of us who have freedom of speech will feel free to describe your teachings as the spreading of falsehoods and will attempt to demonstrate this to your children at our earliest opportunity. If you're going to teach your kids that we are not the product of an evolutionary process, then you better be ready for us to come in and try to correct that and make sure your kids know that's a falsehood. And we'll tell them the real truth. And we'll do that at our earliest opportunity, and we will do it continually. This really is a much bigger contest than just how I choose to view creation. They are admittedly going after our kids. I gave this presentation at a church up in McKinney, and a woman came up to me from the Collin County um, Independent School District. She, she did some meetings and stuff and was a science teacher and yeah, we had an, a, an evolutionist come in from Austin to talk to our, all our science teachers and basically say, don't bother trying to convince your, the parents of evolution. Just convince the kids. 
Ignore the parents. Just get the kids. We get the kids believing evolution, then that will set things up for a generation down the road. Just forget about the parents. They're not going to agree. They're not going to buy it. Focus on the children. That's exactly what Daniel Bennett is saying here. So there is a practical example right here in River City, if you will, of folks who are determinedly targeting our kids. God delusion, end of faith, breaking the spell, letters to a Christian nation. All these guys, base, these are the new atheists, but they're all basing their views on that evolution is reality. Everything is natural process. There is no God, there is no supernatural, and evolution is the final proof of all of that. Nancy Piercy closes this section. To be loyal to the great claims of faith, we can no longer acquiesce in letting Christianity be shunted aside to the value sphere. We must throw off what she calls metaphysical timidity. Yes, Nancy Piercy uses some multisyllabic words. Be convinced that we have a winning case and take the offensive. Armed with prayer and spiritual power, hers is not a materialistic undertaking. We need to ask God to show us where the battle is being fought today and enlist under the lordship and leadership of Christ. Probe has a redeeming Darwin curriculum. I talk about intelligent design and, and how to approach this in an evangelistic context. You can just go to redeemingdarwin.com. Um, Let's see, there was something else I just wanted to throw up here. There are some other resources that you can use. Um, the last one there, Illustra Media, they have a new film. These, these are great films. Unlocking the Mystery of Life, The Privileged Planet, uh, great graphics, well done, well researched, really good stuff, very entertaining. Uh, they've got a new film coming out on the Cambrian Explosion this summer. It's not quite available yet, but any time. It's called, I think the name is, the title is Darwin's Dilemma on the Cambrian explosion. 